2: This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. After the series of major storms that hit America's coastal areas during the last decade, we've heard a lot about resilience and preparation for another major storm like Sandy or Katrina. But how ready are major cities for another big storm of that magnitude? The public radio show Reveal, a project of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, along with its partner, the Texas Tribune, is exploring that question on this weekend's episode, which you can hear at 7 p.m. on Sunday night on WNPR. Got us thinking about how well prepared we are here in Connecticut. We'll be hearing about that in a few minutes. But first, a focus on Houston, one of America's biggest cities, which was right in the path of Hurricane Ike back in 2008. That storm caused tens of billions of dollars of damage and killed nearly 200 people in its path. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Again, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. And you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Our first guest is an investigative reporter with Reveal. She was also a reporter here in 2012 when Superstorm Sandy hit our region. Nina Satija is a radio producer and investigative reporter for the Texas Tribune and Reveal. She joins us today from the studios of KUT in Austin, Texas. Nina, good to talk to you. Welcome back to Where We Live.
0: Thanks a lot, John. It's great to be here.
2: Uh, This program, Hell and High Water, is a collaboration between the Tribune, uh, ProPublica, and Reveal. Again, Sunday night at 7 o'clock on WNPR. We'll put more links and and things on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. So first of all, tell us what you're looking at during this Reveal project.
0: Yeah, well, really, we're looking at what will happen when the next big storm hits Houston. Um, When a storm hits Houston at the right spot um, with the right wind speed— Uh, scientists say it's going to happen. These are not storms that happen every year, but they're storms that could happen once in a generation. And are we ready? Uh, We looked at that for several months here at the Texas Tribune and ProPublica, and we concluded that it it doesn't look like it.
2: Mm. So before we get into that future and some of the things that you found, let's go back in time to Hurricane Ike, back to 2008. What can you tell us about that storm and, and why is the damage from that storm so significant to the story you're telling right now?
0: Yeah, Hurricane Ike is uh it's actually the third costliest hurricane to hit the US. Uh, a lot of people don't uh don't realize that. First was uh, Katrina, then Superstorm Sandy, and then Ike uh caused 30 billion dollars in damage. And um it was really though a near miss. It could have been a lot worse. For several days before the storm made landfall, um folks thought it was going to kind of hit Houston more head more directly. Uh that would have caused Uh, What one scientist referred to as hellacious surges on the Houston Ship Channel, which is a major international port and industrial hub in the Houston area, as well as in suburban Houston, um, where there's other, you know, narrow water channels that jut off the bay. Um, You know, most people that we've talked to have estimated that thousands would have died in that situation. Uh, Rick Perry, uh, who was governor at the time... He actually recalled in an interview several years later um, that it was one of his most defining moments as governor remembering Ike's approach and what could have happened. Uh, the hurricane turned at the last minute, just about six hours before landfall, um, and and the surge estimates um, were all overestimates. It turned out to be about a 10 to 15-foot surge on the ship channel as opposed to a 20, 25-foot surge. But, but really, it, made, it got a lot of scientists here thinking, we are not ready for this. Um, you know, we got lucky and we're not going to continue to get lucky. I spoke with the congressman uh, from the Houston area, Pete Olson, who had, a, I thought, a great phrase for it. He said, the Lord cannot keep we can't keep depending on the Lord moving storms for us. One day one's going to hit us and we have to be ready.
2: Um, and he, this this notion of thousands of people being killed in one of America's largest cities truly is, is terrifying, as it is. Ike killed dozens of people in Texas. It caused about $30 billion of damage. The other people that I referred to who uh, were killed were in Haiti along the path of the storm. Uh, Here's uh, some tape of Houston's then-Mayor Bill White He was urging people not to stay in their homes during the storm. If you think you want to ride something out and people are talking about a 20-foot wall of water coming at you, then you better think again. I wonder if you can comment on that part of the story, Nina, how seriously people took warnings from officials about the the seriousness of of the storm that was coming.
0: Yeah, well, you know, John, the data that we have seems to show they didn't take it all that seriously. Uh Galveston Island in particular. So Galveston is a is, you know, totally surrounded by water pretty much. It's off the coast um in Texas. Galveston was really quite devastated by Ike. Could have also seen worse damage, but the estimates are that, you know, tens of thousands of people I think stayed on the island during the storm uh when really they should have evacuated. Um they were under a mandatory evacuation order although some say it came a little too late. Um, And the National Weather Service was actually saying, um, you know, if you don't leave, you may face certain death. The only other time the National Weather Service has issued a warning like that was before Katrina. So it was really quite a dire situation. And hundreds of people ended up having to be airlifted out of Galveston and uh, the peninsula next to it called Bolivar. So really not enough people evacuated and we got lucky. Um, Evacuations are always tricky uh, across the U.S. You know, people, it's it's hard to get people to take these things seriously seriously. Um, And a lot of people were probably remembering Hurricane Rita, which happened in 2005. Hurricane Rita, because it happened right after Katrina, really scared a lot of folks in Texas. And so in some ways, too many people evacuated, even from zones that were quite far from the coast. And it was an evacuation disaster. I believe dozens of people died on the road in the heat in traffic. Um, And then the storm didn't end up being as bad as people expected. And so a lot of folks didn't evacuate during Ike, remembering the debacle of Rita. But this is the problem with storms and evacuations, is that it's not about what happened last time. It's about what could happen the next time.
2: Well, and, and of course, you know, many, many thousands of people fled after Katrina from New Orleans, and many of them relocated to cities like Houston and never left. Mm-hmm. And so probably that is what was on their minds during Rita and, of course, uh, things changed around Ike. We're, we're talking today with Nina Satija. She is investigative reporter and radio producer for the Texas Tribune and Reveal. It's a public radio program and podcast from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. Their special, Hell and High Water, is a collaboration between the Texas Tribune, ProPublica, and Reveal. You can hear it this Sunday at 7 o'clock on WNPR. We're talking about storm preparedness, what we can learn about big storms like Hurricane Ike and what it can teach us about the Northeast in just a little bit. We're going to be talking about that, and you can join us at 860 275 So as you heard from people, Nina, essentially officials in, in Houston and in Texas were saying, look, we can't just rely on God to turn the storm away from us every single time. So you set out to see what would happen if the area was hit head-on by a mightier Ike. Walk us through uh, what exactly you did to model that and figure out what a bigger Ike might do.
0: Yeah. So, excuse me. What we did um, was we talked to a lot of scientists in the region. And the scientists are the ones who've created these incredible models of what storms could do to the Houston region. Um, And they're actually, you know, technology has made this way better. We've had this modeling, you know, around for for quite a long time. National Weather Service uses it to imagine what storms could be like, what they could do. Um, But this is actually a newer technology. It's called ADCIRC. And these models predict what could happen with amazing specificity. Um, They look at actual, you know, they can predict how high the water will get. They can subtract out what the base land elevation is. So if you live on land that's 10 feet above sea level, that'll be taken into account, you know, looking at how high the storm surge would be at your property or whether you would see storm surge. Uh, They can even take into account sort of smaller levee systems and basically any change in the terrain that would affect how high a storm surge might get. So they're really quite specific. Um, They look at, of course, the wind speeds and the wind direction of the storm. Um, And essentially, they predict if the storm were to hit at this angle, you know, with this wind speed, here's how high the water would go at different areas. Uh, We got models from scientists at the University of Texas at Austin and scientists at Jackson State University. Uh, Some of the models were originally created and developed uh, at FEMA and the U.S. Army Corps. Um, And we basically took those and our uh, data team at ProPublica, they did an amazing job. They put these models onto an interactive map that you can look at online. so you can kind of see the storm surge go over Houston in these different storm scenarios uh, so that was essentially the centerpiece of our project was looking at what these models predict um, and they really are, as I said, quite specific in a way that models just a few years ago were not.
2: Among the people you talked with, it was Sam Brody, a professor of marine sciences at Texas A&M University. he had been studying uh, the Houston region's vulnerability to flooding and storm surge for uh, a lot of years. When you met, he took you on a tour of Clear Lake, a suburban residential area of Houston that experts say is really at risk. Let's listen.
1: This is going to be a shopping center one day. Um, And so we're going to add more people and more structures and more pavement. And so we're where we have a decision that we can say, okay, if we're going to do that, can we do it differently? Um, Does that make sense? Can we understand the risk better and have models like this? Like, hey, look, you could be under eight feet of water. Um, I would be shocked if the developers of that shopping center knew that when they put that in.
2: And Nina, you spoke to the developer of the shopping center that Brody was was talking about. What did he say?
0: Yeah, he said wow. <laughs> he did not know um about this model uh that predicted this shopping center could be under 6 or 8 feet of water. By the way, this model is called Mighty Ike, one of the names researchers have given uh one of the storm models. And um and he sort of said, well, look, you know, uh everyone's at risk. We're all at risk, not just my shopping center. And I will say this is something that we heard again and again and again when we talked to folks uh on the upper Texas coast in the Houston region. Yes, we're at risk, but we're all at risk. Why are you talking to me? You should be talking to this other guy. Um, and, you know, it's it, it makes sense. It's probably something you'd hear across the coast, not just in Houston. But at some point, it's like, well, we have to have a conversation about this and what we can do about it. And if you keep pointing to the next guy, we're not really going to get anywhere.
2: And, of course, this plays right into how a region like Houston, which, as we all know, has been booming and growing and building for decades and decades um, – uh, you talked with Bob Mitchell, president of the, of the Bay Area Houston Economic Partnership, which recruits businesses to the Houston area and helps them expand. And you showed him the visualization of scientists' computer model of a worst-case scenario storm, which would put his office under several feet of water. Let's listen to that.
0: It's underwater. It's Right. It's underwater. It's underwater. That. Trust me. I know that. Why keep expanding this development if— I can't believe that's a serious question. Why? Why is that? Sanctioned? You're going to stop it? development? I mean, that's the same thing. There's no. That question you're asking me is no different than
2: the terrorist right now. Am I going to stop everything I do because I'm worried about somebody going to charge into a store and shoot the place up? Okay. So, <laughs> listening to that, you know, I mean, first of all, give me your reaction to to his reaction to this. Obviously, his is not the only voice you heard saying things like that. But, well, what's the conversation like going on? Is he really saying? Well, we can't let the hurricane win. we can't let the terrorists win. We want to build wherever we want to build
0: uh you know it's a version of that john um and Bob's an interesting an interesting guy. He really in other ways, he really thinks this is a serious problem and wants something to be done about it, and he's beating the drum to build a storm surge protection system in Texas. so he's got an interesting perspective um but yes, I think that a lot of folks see these storms as being so rare. Um, that it doesn't really make sense to you know change your development patterns in anticipation of them, and you know there's different opinions on that. Sam Brody would feel differently. Um, you know today, as as many people may know, we mostly protect for storms that are considered hundred year storms, which actually rather than meaning they're going to happen once in a hundred years, it really means there's a one percent chance of of that type of storm happening in any given year. Um, and that's just not the way it is in the rest of the world. In Europe, in the Netherlands, they look at one in 10,000-year storms, and they're protecting to that level. Um, and so I think that uh, there's definitely mixed opinions on this. But I think what Bob Mitchell really was trying to say is that, um, you know, let's not stop our development patterns. Let's keep bringing businesses here. And rather than making all of us, you know, elevate our individual buildings 20 feet or whatever it should be, let's build a storm surge protection system, a coastal barrier system for Texas. Now, of course, there's no plans to do that anytime soon. And most people don't think it'll actually get built until we have a devastating hurricane. So it's it's kind of a weird viewpoint.
2: Well, and, and of course, the... The idea that this could in any way be similar to a terrorist attack, not knowing when that might happen, putting in certain precautions. Well, terrorists can't attack anywhere and everywhere. What we do know just from science and statistics is a hurricane makes landfall in the Houston area about every eight years, every 15 years It's a major one. So it seems, Nina, like the the numbers are really on the side of people who are saying, we're going to get another one and it's going to be soon.
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, you'll hear people talk about how much money we spend to combat terrorism, um, and the likelihood of attacks, and we probably just haven't had enough to really calculate the likelihood of a terrorist attack. We've had enough storms. We have enough data to know generally what the likelihood of a storm like this is of happening, which, by the way, these are considered somewhere along about 500, one in 500 year storms. Again, that does not mean that it's going to happen once every 500 years. Common misconception. What it means is there is a 0.2 percent chance of that type of storm happening in any given year. Every year, there's a 0.2 percent chance over fifty years, that translates to a ten percent chance, and climate change is 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 messing up all of these numbers uh there's studies that show that five hundred year storms could actually happen every few decades so uh we know much more about the likelihood of a storm like this hitting than we do of a mass shooting or a terrorist attack uh, and you know you can make your own decisions about whether that means we should work to prevent damage
2: a big storm like this like Ike or like Sandy or Katrina obviously it puts businesses of all sorts at risk. And it puts lots and lots of people at risk. And that's the thing we need to worry most about. Um, but, you know, we, we worry about things like Superstorm Sandy sinking Wall Street underwater and, and shutting, down, uh, shutting down stock markets for a couple days. Houston has a, a little different issue. It's home to one of America's largest oil refining and chemical manufacturing complexes. Talk about the, the risks there, because that seems like a pretty major one.
0: Yeah, it's a huge risk. Um this is a this is a city that's home to you know, by some accounts, the largest importing and exporting port in the US. Uh tens of billions of dollars worth of goods are exported out of the Houston uh, ship channel every year. Thousands of ships come through the Houston ship channel every year. You've got 10 major refineries that line the Houston ship channel and dozens of chemical manufacturing plants. Um, And actually, uh, how much oil the refineries produce on any given day is proprietary, but the estimates we've heard are as as much as 25% of the nation's gasoline is produced in those refineries every day. Uh, So it's a lot. Uh, And pretty much everyone we talked to said, you're going to see, you know, on the order of $7 a gallon gas if this type of storm were to hit. Even after storms like Ike and we all maybe remember Katrina, we saw a spike in gas prices for quite some time. So, you know, the Houston Ship Channel being shut down even just for a day, um, estimates have found that it's, you know, something like $300 million a day in lost commerce when the Houston Ship Channel's shut down. So this kind of storm would would put it out for several months, uh, which would really, really cripple the national economy, according to every expert and analyst that we talked to. Uh, and it's not just gasoline. It's also uh, the building blocks of plastic. Those are Many of those are made on the Houston Chip Channel. So we're talking everything from car tires to tennis balls to Tupperware. Uh, whatever makes the prescription pill inert, the inert part of a prescriptions pill, which is like 99% of that pill, a lot of that is made on the Houston Chip Channel. Uh, So we're really talking major impacts, even to consumer goods prices, if you were to see a shutdown for several months.
2: And, of course, you showed your store model to a number of people who were surprised, including, uh, I believe it's Jana Palouche. She works at the Shell Oil Refinery right on the Houston Ship Channel. She lives in Deer Park, which is just across the highway from Shell. Let's listen.
3: This puts it in front of your face and makes it less abstract. So this is something that people need to see. It's not something that some reporters have dreamed up.
2: And because of these chemical and oil storage tanks located in this area, um, this particular area around Houston is at risk. What can you tell us about the damage that a big Ike-like storm could do to these tanks?
0: Yeah, it's it's pretty significant. Um, so along with, you know, when you have refineries and chemical plants on a waterway like this, uh, they store billions of gallons of oil and chemicals. And a lot of those storage tanks are not uh, – the, the regulations don't adequately protect them from something like storm surge, according to the experts that we talked to. And the best example of this is really what ha- something that happened during Hurricane Katrina. Um, a huge oil tank – we're talking something wider than a football field – was actually ripped off its foundation um, near New Orleans. During hurricane Katrina by the force of rushing water so just the storm the force of the storm surge ripped this huge tank off of its foundation it floated and it ruptured and a million gallons of oil traveled through the receding floodwaters to a nearby neighborhood and more than 1500 homes were contaminated with oil along with already being devastated by flooding so it really can cause some pretty catastrophic damage and since that Murphy oil spill, as it's called, it was Murphy the Murphy Oil Refinery, which is now Vala- bought by Valero in Louisiana, since that spill, very little has been done uh, you know, from a government standards, regulations standpoint to prevent something like that from happening again. Uh, what scientists tell us is that the chance of that happening on the Houston Ship Channel, where there are far more storage tanks at risk that also carry dangerous chemicals along with oil, You know, um, the risks are really quite great either to neighborhoods near these refineries and chemical plants or to the environment um, because the Houston Ship Channel leads out into Galveston Bay, uh, which is a very productive estuary right on the Texas coast. So we could really see what scientists have called something on the order of the BP oil spill in terms of damage um, if a storm like Mighty Ike were to hit.
2: You spoke to a marshal, Mott Smith, who's a storage tank safety expert. He told you it's way too expensive to protect storage tanks from spilling in every storm scenario.
4: If you get a direct hit, there's just nothing you can do. You, you wait till it's all over, then you go pick up the pieces and you, you rebuild your tank.
2: Th- that's not very reassuring, Nina.
0: It's not reassuring, no, John. Um, and, you know, this is something that we got from a lot of folks in industry that we talked to. It was sort of, you know, don't. Don't look at us to protect our individual tanks. You know, again, let's build a coastal barrier system for Texas. Uh, That's great, but there are no plans in place right now to build anything anytime soon. And as I said before, a lot of folks we talked to predicted that it will take a devastating hurricane to get something built, which is essentially what happened in New Orleans after Katrina. Uh, You know, they quite quickly rebuilt those levees. and, And even then, they're not protected to a storm necessarily that would be like Katrina today. Um, But that's what got it done. So, um, you know, that's certainly a sobering thought. We'll
2: be talking about the idea behind some of these barrier systems and also what the Northeast is doing to protect against A storm like a mighty Ike. Nina Satija is an investigative reporter and radio producer for the Texas Tribune and Reveal. It's a public radio program and podcast from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. Hell and High Water is a collaboration between the Tribune, ProPublica, and Reveal, which you can hear on Reveal this Sunday at 7 o'clock on WNPR. When we come back, we'll talk to a state official about hurricane preparedness here in Connecticut. And you can join us at 860-275-7266. This is Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up this Sunday night at 7 o'clock on Reveal, it's a special called Hell and High Water, a collaboration between the Texas Tribune, ProPublica, and Reveal, which is a radio program and podcast from the Center for Investigative Reporting. Our former reporter, Nina Satija, is working on this project with the Texas Tribune and Reveal, and she joins us today from the studios of KUT in Austin, Texas. We're going to find out what they've learned about how a big storm could impact the Houston area, and what it might teach us about Connecticut. Of course, back in 2012, we were hit by our own superstorm. Here's Governor Daniel Malloy during a briefing on Hurricane Sandy. Let me see if I can put this in context. Right now, the most likely scenario uh, has a storm surge in Long Island Sound of 7 to 10 feet. Uh, we've seen estimates as high as 11 feet above typical high tide. Uh, that would lead to unprecedented flooding. To put it in perspective, uh, with Irene, we had a four-foot surge. So we're talking about a surge, more than double the surge of Irene, as a real possibility. In fact, the last time we saw anything like this was never, was never. That's Governor Daniel Molloy back in October of 2012 as we prepared for Superstorm Sandy. Nina, you were in Connecticut when Sandy came through the Northeast. Um, listening to the governor there, it sounds an awful lot like some of the messages we were hearing from Houston officials around the time of Hurricane Ike. What are your recollections of the storm and how our state handled it?
0: Yeah, I uh, remember that briefing very well. I believe I was watching it on my uh, TV at home and um, it was a very scary moment. I really, you know, the governor looked quite terrified and then as I recall, what happened is, uh, you know, the storm moved more slowly than we thought. And so the storm surge here in Connecticut uh, didn't coincide with high tide the way we expected. Um, but it really, that moment got me thinking a lot about, um, you know, are we prepared for something like this? Or will there be a discussion after Sandy about how Connecticut got lucky? Um, and that that didn't really happen, um, uh, which was surprising to me. And, um, you know, for, uh, and then I spent a lot of the next year sort of looking at the most vulnerable areas in Connecticut and what was being done but to me for from in my opinion that this that discussion didn't happen and it's been much the same here after hurricane ike uh when i when i got to texas i uh went pretty pretty quickly there was a 5 year anniversary conference that scientists had 5 years since ike in 2013 and they said much the same thing about houston and about texas was we had this near miss that was ike um, and since then, you know, we've been trying to do all of this research and uh, generate discussion about being prepared for the next one. But we haven't gotten a lot of traction.
2: Nina, stand by. I want to bring in William Shea, who's deputy commissioner of Connecticut's Department of Emergency Services and Public Protection, where he's responsible for the Division of Emergency Management and Homeland Security. Uh, Bill Shea, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for being here.
4: Good morning, John. It's good to see you again.
2: Uh, but first of all, tell me how prepared you believe we were for Hurricane Sandy back in 2012.
4: Well, the first thing I'll tell you is that the two major storms that we had in 2011, being Hurricane Irene and the October Nor'easter, um, we learned a lot of lessons from those. And you know, Governor Molloy will be the first one to tell you that any time that we have a disaster, there will be um, lessons that are learned. So, under Governor Malloy's uh, leadership in 2012, we convened what was called the what is called the EPPI, Emergency Planning and Preparedness Initiative. And what that was was a um, a disaster exercise that we had here in the state. It involved all uh, our state agencies. It involved our non-governmental organizations uh, and our 162, or excuse me, 169 municipalities and two tribal nations. And it was a hurricane-based exercise that we had in the summer of 2012, which really set us uh, in a good posture for being able to uh, respond, uh, prepare and respond to uh, Superstorm Sandy. So that was really the the, the big piece that we had um, laid up front. The second uh, piece I'll tell you is that all those municipalities having uh, participated in that uh, exercise and are constantly uh, working and preparing for uh, the next disaster, uh, you know we've got to give uh, uh, recognition to them because those local emergency management directors, those chief elected officials working on their local operations plans really make a difference in the preparation and the, the ability to be able to respond. And lastly, our citizens. We ask our citizens to be partners in our preparation and response to any of these type of disasters. Where we And you've probably heard us say uh, uh, and talk about this, get a kit, make a plan, and stay informed. And then being part of this, all three of those parts make all the difference.
2: So so the major things that, that changed after Sandy, after that hit, I mean, we, we heard in the governor's voice the, the worry about the worst possible thing that happened. And much like the story that Nina's telling in Houston, we weren't hit as directly with this storm as we could have been, but yet it was still very, very damaging. So moving forward, the main things we learned about how to respond to a disaster like that and also prepare in, in a resiliency standpoint so that we, we wouldn't have terrible impacts.
4: Okay, a, a couple things on that. First one um, is, is part of the response to that uh, storm was uh, recommendations for evacuation. And people did take heed to that, which makes a big difference. You know, we, we uh, the recommendations the governor made, for the local municipalities ordering um, for them to uh, evacuate their local areas, and uh, they did, and that obviously makes an impact. There were some, le- as I mentioned earlier, there's lessons learned every time uh, there's a disaster. And uh, one of the things that we didn't have uh, because we hadn't needed it before was long-term recovery. And as part of uh, Superstorm Sandy, because of the devastation that hit Connecticut, uh, we ended up uh, establishing a long-term recovery program. Uh, We hadn't had a need for it in previous uh, storms, so that included establishing a uh, long-term recovery coordinator for the state, establishing a long-term recovery committee, which includes state, local, federal, as well as uh, non-governmental organizations. Um, We established a a recovery framework that is part of our state response framework uh, for uh, disasters. And this long-term recovery committee includes uh, individual assistance working group, an economic recovery working group, natural and cultural research uh, working group, as well as a community planning and capacity building working group.
2: When you talk about the 169 uh, communities, municipalities that have made up their own disaster response plans, how well coordinated are they? We, we often talk about how Our municipalities uh, not being hinged together by any county government may work independently of one another. In your assessment, a couple of years on from Hurricane Sandy or Superstorm Sandy here, um, how well coordinated are the municipalities in the way that they would respond locally?
4: I think every year they're getting better and better. Um, We have – because we don't have county government, we've established uh, five uh, DEMIS uh, supporting regions, if you will, um, regional uh, areas – and each one of those regions, they work together um, and, do, and do planning. They do regional uh, sheltering plans. They do all sorts of, of team uh, uh, building, if you will, uh, mutual aid support, identification of resources that are available. Because as something hits and they have a requirement, the first place they need to go is from, from a local perspective is for mutual aid um, before coming from to a state level. And that's the kind of building that goes on on a daily basis. Uh, in each of those five regions, they have an R, what's called an REPT, a Regional Emergency uh, Planning Team, where they're constantly working on these plans to be able to uh, work together as a team.
2: Uh, if you have questions about how Connecticut is preparing for the next big storm that may come our way, eight six zero two seven five. 7266 Again, 860-275-7266. We're talking with William Shea. He's Deputy Commissioner of Connecticut's Department of Emergency Services and Public Protection. Also joining us is Reveal and Texas Tribune reporter Nina Satija, who's special on preparing the Houston region for the next big hurricane is this Sunday night at 7 o'clock on WNPR. Uh, In listening to some of what Nina's reporting uh, revealed, William Shea, I'm wondering if you can comment on this notion of economic development and or people's uh, desire to build where they want uh, versus the need to really prepare for a storm. What we heard in the Houston area is a lot of people saying, well, look, I know your models might show that my my new development is going to get flooded out, but we can't have that be in the the way of me building where we want to build. I guess I'm wondering from your standpoint, how has Connecticut handled that issue about balancing the needs of economic development along a very expensive and important shoreline and making sure that these shoreline developments are safe from a storm surge? Well, um,
4: the big part of that is when building does occur, there's all sorts of permitting that's required working with the State Department of Energy and Environmental Protection as well as the local. So those are decisions that are made um, at that local level uh, in conjunction with the state, especially when you get into into floodplains and, and marshes and those kinds of areas. So, um, you know, there is a structure that um, is already in place for doing those kind of things. Uh, as part of uh, Superstorm Sandy, uh, there are, are resilience uh, items that are ongoing uh, on a daily basis. That includes um, hazardous mitigation um grant funding that we've received from the federal government in which uh, we're uh, involved with uh, home elevations so houses are being elevated so that if a storm was, hits again, uh, the houses are at a higher level. Uh, additionally, there is um, a community, uh, what's called CDBGDR, Community um, uh, Development and uh, uh, Disaster Relief Funding that's gone through the Department of Housing and the resiliency projects that are ongoing on the, um, on the coastline in a number of our communities
2: but but does the, does that disaster relief funding does it um uh is it incentivizing building in place and and rebuilding uh, uh buildings where they were damaged or is it incentivizing retreating from the shoreline or building buildings up or in, in a way more resilient than they were originally
4: I think it's a little bit of both yeah
2: well it, maybe you could explain that a little bit because I, mean, I think f- for instance, you talk about uh, homes being raised up uh, to a different level. Is that mandatory or is that optional if If a, if a home was destroyed in, in a superstorm sandy and it's re- and it's rebuilt, must it be rebuilt uh, to withstand a storm, storm surge in a different way, or could it be rebuilt in the way that it was rebuilt be- or built before?
4: That's a local decision that's made Um, with regards to the federal funding that's available. uh, In order to do that, uh, it requires elevation and requires you to have uh, flood insurance with that. Uh, Part of that um, hazardous mitigation funding also includes uh, we do some home acquisitions uh, in which, you know, it, it doesn't make sense for that home to continue to be there. Mm-hmm. And we've done some of that also.
2: Nina, can you talk about that from what you've learned from the Houston area too, about the, the ways in which um that, that region rebuilt after Ike or similar storms and what maybe is different moving forward?
0: Yeah. Uh so I spent a lot of time talking to local officials, especially in the Clear Lake area. This is one of the fastest growing residential areas in the Houston metro area. And um I got different responses. I you know, those areas were still devastated by Hurricane Ike, although it wasn't as bad as it could have been. Um, some of them change their building codes a little bit. Um, in in a few, you have to actually, if you're in the hundred year floodplain, your base elevation of your home has to be higher than the FEMA standards—18 inches higher in one case, and two feet higher in another case of two cities that I talked to. Um, you know, still wouldn't protect against something like a 500 year storm but is certainly better. So there have been changes. Uh you asked about elevations, John. Um you know, that's something that a lot of communities leaders brought up with me. They said, "Look, we have these grants from FEMA to elevate older homes, but you know, the problem is that these grants don't it's, it's they're not going to be elevating hundreds of homes. It's it's a lot of money to elevate one home. Uh you'll the homeowner will also have to incur some of that cost, probably tens of thousands of dollars. So really only a few dozen homeowners um have benefited from those in uh, some of the Clear Lake cities, as Clear Lake area cities that I talked to, so there are a lot of efforts being made. I think uh, the scale is just not very big. It's just not a it's not a large scale. And I will say too that a lot of recovery dollars are used to build in areas that are flood prone. Um, most of the time, if you're using recovery dollars or you're rebuilding a house that was completely destroyed in a hurricane, if you want to be up to the FEMA code or uh, get and have flood insurance, uh, you probably do have to. Elevate if you weren't elevated before, uh, but but most of this is not going to protect against the type of storms that we have been writing about. Uh, the consensus seems to have been for a long time that we're just going to protect against what's called a hundred year storm, uh, and that's what a lot of sec- scientists and uh, experts think needs to change.
2: Well, one of the I think more fascinating things about uh, the work that Nina and Reveal is doing, uh, Commissioner Shea, is this is this notion of showing people a model. of of what might happen in a worst worst case scenario. I I guess I'm wondering, is your department, is anyone at the state looking at modeling like that? I mean, have you seen models uh, very much like the ones that they've mapped out for a mighty Ike that says here's what would happen to Milford, Guilford, New Haven, Brantford, and all these other places if indeed we get a storm much worse than than Sandy was?
4: We see see the flood maps uh, that came out. There's a new series that just came out recently from uh, uh, the feds. And we have those and, and are reviewing those. And, and what does it show you? Well, it shows that, you know, there in, in along our coastline, uh, there's vulnerabilities. There's, there's no doubt about it. Um, and that uh, if you live in those areas, if you have businesses in those areas, and a storm of this type is coming, you're going to have requirements to, to evacuate.
2: Mm. I want to get to Pat, who's calling from New Haven. Hi, Pat. Go ahead.
3: Um, I had a role in... Nemo, Sandy, and Irene in uh, one of the state's major cities. And a thing that continues to just be burning in me is a great concern about all of the elderly and people with disabilities that are living in uh, housing that was built with public funds, who, when power goes out, are stuck, often in multi-story buildings. And there is no planning in our state right now uh, to, to put generator power in those buildings. Um, there's been legislation in each of the last several sessions of the General Assembly. It's gone no place just to do a study. Um, and I really think this is very irresponsible. We need to have a plan. There could be funding that is made available to the people that own and operate those buildings, not for free, but to get it done quick, and with payback over an extended period of time, hmm. um, well, if the state could provide bonding.
2: Pat, so Pat, I'll, I'll well, uh, thank, answer y- yeah. off, off the air. And, and, Pat, thank you very much, and I, I really appreciate your question. Uh, Commissioner, how, how can you respond to Pat?
4: Well, I will tell you that there is um, uh, planning. If um, we have uh, um, citizens with special needs, if they have to be evacuated or moved, um, there are plans in place for doing that uh, to include uh, sheltering.
2: Uh, Regional sheltering, those kinds of things, specifically. Think, yeah, and I think part of Pat, Pat's issue is really is it is hard to get everyone out of some of these facilities, oh, right? A- yeah, ab-
4: absolutely. And yeah. and with that, I'll always, um, if there is an evacuation requirement, um, you know, that's why we we look you know forward x number of days, not just oh the storm's going to be here tomorrow. Uh, but with that, um, we'd have to go back and look specifically at any generator requirements or requests are there. I'm not specifically familiar with that one. Uh, But we'll definitely take a look at
2: it. Nina, how is the region that you've been studying dealing with that very important issue?
0: Yeah, it's a really, really tough one, John. Um, The state actually has a system called STEAR, S-T-E-A-R, and I don't recall exactly what it stands for. But it's essentially a registry system um, for folks that are elderly, disabled, uh, may not have access to a car. They can register, and then the state knows in advance of a storm, hey, these are the people that need to get out. This is where they live. Let's try and help them. But, you know, what the chief emergency manager of the state told me, Nim Kidd, is that, look, uh, you know, people can register for this all year round. And we see the spikes one or two days before a storm hits when it is way too late to get them out of there. It's just too late to evacuate, you know, one day before a storm makes landfall. You're going to get stuck on the highway. Uh, And so it's really it's a very, very tough problem. Um it's, it's tough to convince a lot of folks to evacuate who may have trouble evacuating. They don't want to leave their homes because they know it could take them a very long time to get back. We saw that happen during Hurricane Ike in Galveston. People left, and then they couldn't get back to their houses for three months or more. Uh, Katrina's uh, similar problem makes people not want to evacuate. Um, so it's a it's a really tough problem. And then, of course, if you tell everyone, if you give them the doomsday scenario that you're thinking is going to happen, which is what happened with Ike and in some ways Sandy – um, and they take it seriously, and they leave, and the doomsday scenario does not occur, then you get blamed for it <laughs> so it 's just a it 's a very 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 difficult problem and, and um,
2: in terms of people not wanting to leave their homes we got a, a an email from Chip in East Haven who wants to ask you, Commissioner. Uh, about people not wanting to evacuate because of the worry of looting. He says that in East Haven, this is something I can't confirm, that there were looters during uh, uh, Superstorm Sandy. Um, there are certainly problems with that in various areas that are evacuated. Is that a concern, and, and how do you deal with that issue?
4: I think that's a concern with uh, any time asking people to leave leave their homes. Um, I do, you know obviously this is a, a local issue uh, within each of the municipalities is that when an evacuation is ordered that there's going to have to be uh, road guards it's going to require um, some sort of uh, uh, volunteer or whether it be a cert team, the community emergency response team the local p d or something to be able to um, look at that area. But but just I
2: understand how it works, an evacuation order could come from the state level, right? It can. So if an evacuation order comes from the state level, but each municipality is really responsible for those those protection measures or some of the evacuation measures that you need to have in place, is there a disconnect there between a state-ordered evacuation and what each individual town might be able to do to respond to it?
4: We haven't done a state evacuation order uh, in the case of Superstorm Sandy. It was uh, recommended, and the locals ordered the state, the, um, the local municipalities ordered the
2: evacuation. And, and so, but since we're in the uh, in the notion that Nina has put forward in, in Houston, I guess I'm wondering if we can imagine a state evacuation order. If we can imagine what would happen right now if we had to have a state evacuation order, how well coordinated do you think that we are?
4: I think we've got the the pieces in place to be able to to respond to something like that, tying in our state agencies, whether it's the uh, National Guard. Uh, state police, uh, local um, police responders. Um, each, uh, we have 97 communities in the state of Connecticut that have uh, community emergency response teams, CERT teams, part of our citizen corps. They're volunteers that could do things like, um, you, know, guard, uh, you know, putting people at the end of roads or, or uh, you know, checking people to come in and out of a neighborhood uh, as part of a security um, there's a lot of pieces and parts that are in place to be able to respond to that.
2: When we come back from our break, we'll be bringing in Rick Bennett, who's a scientist for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, and a coordinator of the service's Hurricane Sandy recovery and resiliency efforts, talking about more resiliency efforts here in the Northeast. If you want to join us, 860 7266 Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up tomorrow, there's an auction for space on public airwaves that might affect parts of the spectrum used by television stations. We'll talk about that. We'll also preview some events this weekend, including the Connecticut Forum. I'll be uh, hosting this panel that includes Susan Cain. She'll talk about being an introvert in an extroverted world. That's coming up tomorrow on Where We Live. Today, we're previewing a Reveal uh, special coming up this Sunday at 7 o'clock. It's called Hell and High Water. It's a collaboration between the Texas Tribune, ProPublica, and Reveal. Nina Satija is a reporter for Reveal and the Tribune. She joins us from KUT in Austin, Texas. William Shea is here. He's Deputy Commissioner of Connecticut's Department of Emergency Services and Public Protection. For the last couple of minutes, I want to bring in Rick Bennett, a regional scientist for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Northeast region, also coordinator of the services Hurricane Sandy Recovery and Resiliency Efforts. Rick, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much, John. Pleasure being
2: here. First of all, what's being done along the East Coast from your perspective to make our coastline more resilient?
1: Well, you know, from our perspective, we're uh, the Department of Interior and the Fish and Wildlife Service is investing a lot of money through Sandy Relief Funds to really restore uh, natural systems and and look at green infrastructure approaches to providing resilience to both communities as well as ecosystems. So if we restore ecosystems, it'll provide not only benefits for fish and wildlife resources, but it'll also provide services uh, to uh, local communities, whether that be infrastructure protection, economic, recreational, uh, those kind of approaches. We're kind of taking three uh, major approaches from our perspective we're looking at uh, uh beach dune complexes uh our coastal wetlands and then aquatic connectivity through dam removals so those are basic approaches that we're looking at and uh be happy to
2: Well and I wonder if you, if yeah if you could talk a little bit more about that I mean these are man-made barriers in some ways but they're also using natural systems
1: Yeah so the uh uh, so so the green infrastructure approaches would be – I'll give you an example. So it's, it's in the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, it's Smith Island, a real historic island for crabbing, um, very vulnerable to storms. It has a, a large fetch so the wind and waves can really hit there hard, very low elevation. So we're putting in living shorelines – which are considered green infrastructure we're using basically some rock to protect 21,000 feet of shoreline and then putting in living system sand and grasses and and protecting these SAV beds and marshes that are behind it. Which uh, will yeah, well what what can you tell us about what's happening in Connecticut right now? In Connecticut we have Uh, a variety of dam removal projects. So in New England, in in general, we have lots of these low-head old mill dams. Um, And I think we have at least five uh, dams being removed in Connecticut uh, through through the Fish and Wildlife Service in partnership with the state, uh, NGOs, a variety. None of these things happen uh, uh, by ourselves. You know, we have to work cooperatively. Mm. But what they're doing is when we take these dams out, there's two real... Two real benefits that go along with them. One, you get the uh, we'll re- reestablish the runs for fish, so we remove barriers for passage. So that's really good from our perspective. But it's also providing uh, flood protection. A lot of these dams are old; they're not well maintained. There's risk of catastrophic failures, and that would not be good. But but even when you get storm events coming in, typically you get a lot of upstream. Uh, flooding communities upstream of the dams get flooded out. So by taking them out, you're restoring the floodplains and allowing now providing that protection to the communities while also providing uh, the fish runs.
2: Uh, uh, Bill Shea, maybe you can talk about how you're coordinating an efforts like this from your department.
4: Well, you know, um, there are are a couple uh, similar efforts uh, that are ongoing Uh, I mentioned earlier the CDBGDR, which is the Community Development Block Grant uh, Disaster Relief through the Department of Housing. And then uh, another one that we were involved with, uh, led by, um, uh, for the state of Connecticut, April Capone from uh, OPM, which was the uh, National uh, Disaster Resiliency Competition, which was based on Superstorm Sandy, which was almost a billion dollars that was made eligible on a competitive basis, for the nation, and we were able to get uh, $54 million awarded to the state of Connecticut, which will go to um, two specific uh, or two projects here in Connecticut, uh, which involve green infrastructure as well as access to transportation and those kind of things. So a very beneficial program, similar to what uh, this gentleman uh, mentioned. And there is a uh, under that CDBG DR. There are some of those coastal programs involving beach and beach uh, reconstruction and those kind of things.
2: Nina, we just have about a minute and a half left. But what's going on in Texas uh, regarding resiliency programs like this?
0: So green space very important. Also much cheaper than building a huge coastal barrier. Is letting uh, letting natural systems absorb those floodwaters and protect communities. Bottom line here in Texas is it's not going to protect against a storm like Mighty Ike or a five hundred year storm. It's not enough. Uh, I'm assuming that's probably the case, too, over up in the Northeast. makes a huge difference, not enough to protect against these real storms that that scare people.
2: And, and Rick Bennett, I've just got a minute for you, but I'd love for you to respond to that. Part of the notion we're, we're grappling with here is is making us resilient and able to withstand not just the storms we've had, but the worst possible storm. What can you say about that briefly?
1: Well... I think if we have a large, complex natural systems in place, they'll do a lot to help um, on, a, on a major storm. Green infrastructure projects are going to be more geared to uh, uh, not those major catastrophic storms, but they'll help you on the general storms, really absorbing floodwaters, knocking down waves, um, those kind of things. But you know, you're, you're, you design things to a level of risk that
2: you're willing to accept. <laughs> willing to accept and, and, and willing to pay for, certainly. It's a fascinating exactly. conversation. Rick Bennett is a regional scientist for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, coordinator of the service's Hurricane Sandy recovery and resiliency efforts. Thank you so much, Rick. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks. Thanks also to William Shea, Deputy Commissioner of Connecticut's Department of Emergency Services and Public Protection. He's responsible for the Division of Emergency Management and Homeland Security. Good to see you once again, sir. Thanks for being here. Thank you. And Nina Satija, an investigative reporter and radio producer for the Texas Tribune and Reveal. Their special, Hail and High Water, is a collaboration between the Tribune, ProPublica, and Reveal. It airs this Sunday night at 7 o'clock on WNPR. Always good to speak with you, Nina. Thanks so much, John. Our program produced by Lydia Brown and Tucker Ives. Our technical producer, Kion Wolf. Heather Brandons. our digital editor. Our executive producer is Katie Tolarski Continue this conversation online, wnpr.org slash where we live.